Isel Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Simpoesi streaming to you from the Gedigal land of the Eora Nation. My name is Ira and I'm currently joined in the studio by Aris duo Joe Wilson and Chanel Collier, who are currently exhibiting at the National Arts School as part of Art Spaces Visual Arts Emerging Fellowship. Joe and Chanel's practice is described as generative, built around ideas and interests in relational exchange, dialogue, agency and labor. They work alongside galleries and institutions using image, object and sound. And their work acts as a testing ground to explore strategies of criticality and care. Joe and Chanel, good morning or almost afternoon. Thank you for coming here. Thanks, Ira. Hi. Oh, I should put you on. Oh, there, thanks, there you go. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. I'd love to start actually by unpacking some of these things that I just mentioned in your introduction. And one of them is that your art practice is generative. I was curious, what does that mean when an art practice is generative? And maybe in particular in the case of your practice? Well, I think we have a really good specialization at packing and unpacking cars to get to exhibitions. <laughs> um, <laughs> But in terms of generative practice, it means that one of the things that we've become increasingly interested in is the way that you can generate ideas and relationships between peers and between your audience. And we're very lucky because we have a, not a unique, but a, the special relationship of having a generative practice with each other, um, which, which can be obsessive and exhausting, but also incredibly fruitful. You know, we have a meeting every morning over coffee, basically. <laughs> and sometimes at night over beers. But I feel like that's the area where it is generative. Like, one project leads to another. They're not, like, isolated ideas or projects or shows. They're often, like, elongated, ongoing, and involve a lot of different people. And every time a new person is drawn into it, a new aspect is drawn out of it. It's, like, very um, process-based. Like, it's open to the influences of others and what happens. And we often look at um, not what the work or objects are, but what they do. What actions can they provide? What opportunities can they open up? Um, and I feel like in that sense it is generative. It's mm -hmm. like always kind of asking what's going to come next and not determined by an outcome. Mm. In order to describe to listeners what your work actually looks like so they can visualize it, especially those who haven't had a chance to go to National Arts School yet, and before we go into politics and meaning of each of those works that are presented there, I was wondering if you could take us through the exhibition. What do we actually encounter when we walk into the space? What kind of installation, I suppose, we come into? Do you want to start? Sure. We, <laughs> we kind of, in our pitch, we said we were going to like display a parade of colour. And to that effect, uh, our work is, you meet our work very as the very first thing as you enter the gallery into this large stairwell foyer space. And there are huge... Uh, there's lots of uh, ribbons and, and ta what, what are actually tails hanging down and up in, this, up in the height of the um, foyer is a field of kites, different coloured kites and all the colours are very retro. We use vintage tents, tent canvas, so lovely oranges and browns and tans. Um, do you want to add to that? Yeah, there's also like banners and text which um, are taken from like conversations that we've had together about our work. Um, and it's accompanied by um, a series of uh, mixtapes that Joe's been making and also sounds from a project called This Is Not A Love Song that are sounds of the museums from around the world. Um, when you go into the gallery space, 
um, there's kind of it's so hard to describe these things in words. <laughs> no, we've got this big piece we call Kite Spectacular Flower Power. I've got really long that title. Yeah, it's a long. Yeah. it's a long title. That's not yeah. the whole title. It's printed canvas, and it's kind of like a giant kite that has a, a solvent transfer of like flowers on it, and it's stretched across a like a brass framework. Um, when you walk further into the gallery, there's a um, like a sound station set up with again like a brass structure with a tape player hanging from it and a, a, a kind of brown and tan canvas backdrop and a lot of the equipment that we use to make the mixtapes. It's like a picnic slash campfire slash jam room. You have mentioned uh, the flower print on it. I mm -hmm. wanted to ask you about the significance of the flower because it seems to be an emblem if, in your works. Yeah. You have used it quite a bit mm -hmm. and it's daisy. Is it daisy flower? That one the... in particular is. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about the symbolism of the flower as a choice in your work? Sure. We first started using it because we were using these um, vintage French, French tents that had these beautiful... Um, like internal, like canopies and um, curtains. and curtains that had this flower print on them, and they were made in the 60s. So they were quite obviously like drawing from the popular image of the flower that was used so predominantly in the counterculture movement and like the hippie movement. And it's like all of those kind of bright colours that symbolise some kind of, to, to us in any case, I guess, an expression of freedom. Um, so we and love. And love and joy. <laughs> packaged, so, packaged as a commodity to take your family on a holiday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So we're kind of like looking at these kind of symbols of, um, uh, I guess, freedom and resistance and how they can, they can um, help inspire us to build a language within our own practice, a visual language of like resistance and joy and care and approaching the boundaries within our own work with some kind of um, uh, like levity and strength, I guess. And... The daisy image that's on that bigger kite, I guess, has come out of working from that original flower image, and it was something that we um, basically found when we were driving to Joe's mum's house on the side of the road. Highway daisies. Yeah. And then another image that's present there is an image of a unicorn. Can you speak yep. to that a bit? <laughs> What's it called? Alicorn. I like calling it a e unicorn better, yeah. though, even though it's wrong. Every, every six-year-old corrects us. Yeah. Um, but it's our unicorn. It's our unicorn. It's a, a reference to sort of the myth of the artist, I think. And the, it's, it's, I don't know. Maybe you can expand. It's a myth. The myth of the artwork. Yeah, as I feel like in um, like there's this idea of the myth of the artist that comes in like varied forms. Forms, I guess. There's like the um, the like romantic recluse, the creative genius, the like bad boy artist. There's like some kind of like magic in the artist's hand, this like magic that happens in the artwork. And I feel like it's this mythical thing that like every artist is chasing and everyone is looking for, but it's like so rarely if ever actually attainable. So we're like, well, if this is like part of the um, realm that we're working within, let's just make our own myth. We're mm -hmm. going to fly our own banner with a unicorn on it. We'll just be the mythical creature. Instead of signing our name, here's a unicorn stamp, done. Mm. <laughs> And all these works are part of an ongoing project and you were speaking how your practice is this generative practice in terms of being ongoing. One project takes you into the next thing that you will do. And this particular one is called Summer of 68 and you started it, I think, in 2017. So it's been about five years you've been engaging with this. Yeah, 18, I think. 
Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Huge difference. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> uh, okay, it's 18, uh, 2018. So about four to five years that you have been uh, working on this. And partly this work is uh, drawing from Guy Debord's Society of Spectacle and uh, Situation is International and it includes some play with language and slogans. Is the language bit within the exhibition coming from Guy Debord or inspired by Guy Debord? A bit of both. Inspired by? There's we other... actually have like direct quotes, though, as well. Like the No Work and Work Never is the Guy Debord artwork. Yeah, and the Guy Debord was influential in the student uprisings that led to the large worker strikes in '68, and he was very famous for graffitiing work never in French. I'm not sure how to say that. No. I probably should have practiced it. No part. Traveling. I love that you just went for it anyway. Yeah, my, my, my language skills are low. Good job. Um, uh, and that, that anti-work sentiment is just an interesting element of the of the situation as Skeeterboard writes about it. Um, his memoir is quite funny. He, he extols his virtues as a drinker. You know, he said he he wrote less than most writers, but drank more than most drinkers. Is um, that why you why you have glass fair as part of the exhibition? Is oh, I didn't never even actually no, thought of that. That's a correlation. <laughs> uh, the glass fair actually comes from another project called Play Something Else Cowboy. That's a um, basically a cocktail bar as a site for conversation with artists, and we kind of take quotes from those conversations and inscribe them on cocktail glasses as part of the like remnants of the work. Oh, beautiful. And you tend to invite whoever is interested in coming to have yeah. a conversation with you, and this happens within your home setting as well. And that's another project that's been going on for yeah yeah a we've while. come we've come to consider it like our own Ari, except we don't exhibit anything. We just have conversations and dialogue um, mm. through this space, and it's been really fruitful to do oh that. Oh my god, yeah. I and feel like the, it's the best, ex- the best, like just ongoing exhibition that we could possibly do as like something mm. that is fulfilling to our practice. I feel like it's a program, and the glassware has. We do this cocktail glassware, but we get every now and then somebody says a perler quote, and we will write that down. And then we'll engrave that on a cocktail glass, and so we're accumulating these glasses. They're like souvenirs, I guess. Yeah. Of the nights, <laughs> and some of them are exhibited as part of the exhibition. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Coming back to those slogans that are printed on the kite tails, right? I was wondering if we could unpack a few of them. Um, Some that stood out for me are these, for instance, relocating the site of art to the body and the use of time. I think that's your one, Joe. Yeah. (laughs) Relocating it away from the object, like uh, so a painting or a sculpture or a drawing... Um, and I think it, it roots it in some sort of uh, connection to a continual performance of a task. You know, every painter is painting. They're in an activity of doing something in the studio. And I guess uh, the sound work has drawn our interest towards um, how how bodies exist in space, their mm-hmm. value, labour, the type of uh, the type of work involved in looking and seeing and doing, mm-hmm. um, which relates to the re- sound recording projects of museums, mm-hmm. um, and that relocation. I, I don't know. We 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 sort of pushed with a motto for a while: um, doing over making. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's just about turning attention away from this. I feel like it's the enduring object that we kind of want to like just release ourselves from. Like we don't need to be obligated by it. 
Yeah, and we borrow that from that's a lot of situationist sentiment mm-hmm. that that draws away from canonizing and valorizing the artwork as this grand and uh, vesticle of is that a word? Well, um, I have no idea. <laughs> sorry, vessel of of value and yeah. whereas whereas there's something beautiful about the life that artists lead and the relationships they have between each other and the things that the ideas and knowledge they share and the skills and techniques. That's um, that's and that's enough. a place that's a place of value. So that's relocating the site of art mm-hmm. to the action, to the performance, to the time, and to the body. Mm-hmm. You have just mentioned now, Joe, this other project. Uh, this is not a love song, which is the sound work within the exhibition. And as part of this project, you have been recording the sounds of the museums around the world, the major galleries and museums. And you're intending to record, I think, 200 of them. What sparked the interest to start recording these sounds? And have there been any surprises as the project has, has been going? Yeah, we wanted to figure out a, a project that could be a good pitch to go to different countries. So doing a recording in museums in different countries was our avenue. And we launched, a, we did a, an exhibition with just one recording and then we moved on from that. Probably the most surprising thing is that... That makes it sound so insincere. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I feel like that's a tiny bit of it. It was a tiny bit. There's a lot more, but I'm just giving you one Am part I allowed, of it. Am I allowed to critique each other? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, you can... This is how we do it, usually. It's fine. <laughs> the surprising thing, though, was actually the... Because we can't possibly do it all ourselves, we want a recording from each country. Yeah. Um, the the work is very much one that we need to have help with from contributors and people that are interested to be involved with it. And so, actually, the work becomes more centred on correspondence and communicating with um, all the people that are are willing to help and figuring out how to like take that project forward. And the sound is it's just a becomes like a white noise where you can. Mm. It's a great thinking sort of noise. I've done a lot of writing to it just because it um, it fills space and it's mm. it's this big echoic set of uh, voices mm. and hushed whispers and children screaming and alarms and. Mm. Yeah. So I feel like there is something surprising about that. I didn't necessarily think that we were. I don't know that we were actually feel like going to capture the essence of something, which is maybe it's like too poetic a way of putting it, but it does kind of feel like that after listening to like so many of them. Like, there is some kind of, like, heartbeat of the institution that you're, like, tapping into, particularly, like, when all of them were closed for so long. Mm. Um, but I, going to your um, question about what was surprising, I feel like the surprising, like, turning point in that project was actually that it became about people, like Joe said. Like, we had intended to just collect one recording from each continent, so it started out really small. Mm. And we got... By doing a um, residency at the Cité des Arts in Paris, we because there's so many other artists there from so many other countries. Mm-hmm. We just got all of these offers mm-hmm. of help. So it suddenly expanded into, like, having, like... I think now we have, like, what, 50 or 60 people on board doing recordings on our behalf mm-hmm. um, in countries that we probably won't get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it very much became about this international network of people mm-hmm. rather than actually just making an archive of sounds like it actually is like joe said it becomes more about correspondence mm. another nice thing about it was at its at its core it was a, it, the project is about encountering the museum and and uh reaching toward it and it's a critique it's probably an institutional it's an institutional critique mm-hmm. but um the institution is just a system 
and the nice thing, the revealing thing is, like, as you meet people at all levels of 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 um, uh, engagement, arts, engagement, arts work within the institution, each of them is their own, you know, subjective person who are also working within and against and for mm-hmm. the institution itself. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're the director or the mm. you know mm-hmm. the chief curator, or there's been a lovely warmth, you know when you meet and Yeah, and like talk. the institution is cold and you come up against this like real harsh barrier but then you get through that barrier to an individual and it's like there's all of these similarities and suddenly you're in a conversation and it's weird that it like at once like breaks down those barriers and also pronounces them like you get to see them more clearly. Mm. That's something I was also wondering about and curious given that the equipment that you are using to record those sounds is quite non-invasive sometimes even your uh, phone as far as I understood but yeah. at the same time you had to ask for permission to go and record. We didn't have to. You didn't? Okay. <laughs> no we didn't have to. No we set <laughs> we up. Chose to. You chose and why was that? Why did you choose? Is it because of that engagement? I guess we wanted the... to also well I guess we also wanted to make the institution complicit because mm-hmm. even by saying no they engage with the project. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like yes. If, yeah. um, so did you did you receive lots of no's? No, usually get you get silence. Uh-huh. But, um... Uh, no, it, some people did say no. Some places said no. It's, there's uh, it, we still did it anyway. <laughs> at, at, uh, yeah, at the Pompidou, um, we were given access to record through the space through a curator. Um, that you should not name them, just FYI. I won't. Um, <laughs> and then... Um, In case they are listening all the way from Paris. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they were quite. Respect, they were respect. quite. They were quite forward in saying, "I don't think you should get permission from the gallery. It'll take too long. It's too bureaucratic. Uh-huh. Just, just don't let a guard see you." And, yeah. And so that was permission without. So permission. it was like yes and no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had yeah, and we've had three core sort of principles engaging the project, which was permission, agency, and labour. Um, and I won't expand on that, but but the permission was important to. Um, the approach. Just to create the approach and to rather than. We liked the idea of being, uh, what was it, like an incursion into the museum, but at the same time there was something interesting about um, reaching out as well. Yeah, the care and respect that's involved in, like, asking for permission and, out, like, saying what you're doing and being transparent. I feel like they're all kind of things that I want to have in my practice, so it's, like, don't want to start doing something mm. that feels, like, underhanded or secretive. Or... Mm. Would you be able to use these sounds if you didn't ask for permission? Was that also kind of copywriting issues that would exist there? If it's different were... in each country. Mm-hmm. We take care not to record the sound of artworks in the yeah, space. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's one of our stipulations. That way we're not... All people's voices, we can clearly understand them. Yeah, we're trying, yeah we try not to infringe on other artists' um, mm-hmm. work, even kinetic sounds from their work. So we... That's part of our instructions when we um, ask contributors mm. to help us. Mm. And another thing that you're trying to avoid recording from what I was reading on your website is the sound of your own bodies. It says that you either stand or sit carefully to avoid recording the sound of your own body. And then we were speaking about a body just recently. You were saying something around body, Joe. Then I was curious, why was it important for you to avoid the sound of your body when the body is actually part of the soundscape of the space that you are recording? Well, my nose has a habit of whistling, and I was just hearing that come through before. And it's because it's 
these sounds, but these the body is the closest, often the closest thing to the microphone. Uh-huh. So in terms of a um, ambient recording, hearing like um, mm-hmm. shuffling and and papers. Like, you know, some people have read books or something. You can hear them turn the pages. It's quite yeah, funny. Yeah, because like, I feel like it's more of a recording but, of your position in the space rather than a portrait of yourself. And that's what it becomes. Like, when you mm-hmm. hear, like, the intimate details of, like, what someone is doing for 15 minutes, it becomes a portrait of them rather yeah. than their position in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be actually be a better way of doing that, like, better instructions as we go forward. But um, that's the best way we've figured out how to do it so far. Mm. We hope as it builds momentum that eventually the some of the museums will help us by doing it for us. Some of them have already. Yeah. And also this project has became an inspiration for a radio show in London where firstly they're playing these recordings from various museums, but then you, you have also engaged some sound artists and musicians to respond to those sounds, and there is side B of the project that is those kind of musical, I guess, engagements. And I might just play a tiny bit of one. Um, Jack Prest is one of the musicians who has made this response. I think it includes him, Ben Freeman, Claire Edwards, Jason Noble, Freya Sheck-Arnold. I'll just hear And Jack Jack Prest was our collaborator in reaching out to um, that radio station. Thank you. 
It's really nice all these layers that exist in that sound, like the footsteps and the noise of the space. Have you, when you work with Jack on this, were you feeding in some of your ideas to how to approach this or was he just free to play with it in any way he wanted? Each, each of the musicians came to it with with their own interpretation. Yeah, we gave very little instruction. We, I mean, obviously we like chose people that we were interested in, but we kind of let them respond to it as they wanted. Mm-hmm. And Jack was collaborating on that entire radio program set, so... Yeah, so he obviously had like an intimate understanding of the project mm-hmm. already. Um, but he... I think his notes from that session was that he... He didn't... I don't think he gave the musicians any, like, a huge amount of instruction. Mm, he I did can't that. Remember. He played that recording to them and had them improvise over it. And these recordings are now available for purchase on vinyl as well, because you have been producing some of those for those who might want to actually hear the rest of this that we didn't play. Yeah, no. we haven't pr- we haven't um, cut them to vinyl. That um, that the episodes for the radio station, which was um, Resonance Extra, but it is on the Resonance Extra. Um, website under the program This Is Not A Love Song Sound Archive and no, it's also... Radio. This Is Not A Love oh, Song radio. radio. Yeah, sorry, that's the other one. Um, and it's also available on our website. Which is joewilson.space. Thanks, Hira. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. For those who want to go and listen uh, after this show finishes, of course. If anyone wanted a record, I would make it for them, for sure. Okay, how do they get in touch with you? Through the same website, I suppose? joewilson.space. For sure. That's good to know. Um, and and uh, talking about all these collaborations that you have and other people adding to your sound archive, that's also part of this exhibition that those who would like and contribute to the sound installation that you have at the National Art School at the moment. Is, is that correct? Did I get that right, that your peers can actually add to the sounds? Not in the exhibition at the art school, but we're always um, interested in 
getting more people on board to do recordings for us for the museum project. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've made a mixtape for every day of the exhibition. So uh -huh. for, for 30 minutes between 12.30 and 1, I invite anybody to come and we'll put a tape on and have a listen in the foyer of the space. And after 15 minutes, we'll flip it over and then that'll be... That'll have happened. <laughs> so is this an act of joint listening that you're interested in there? Or is there a conversation as part of that as well? Or is it purely coming together to listen to those sounds in the space? I feel like it's more about having continued agency over the work while the exhibition is on. Mm -hmm. So there's this like continued involvement in the making of the work each day mm -hmm. rather than it being like static. Yeah, and, and as a time-based thing, 30 minutes in a six-hour day, it's just an ephemeral moment that uh, uh, people can participate in. And I think I approached making a lot of the sound. A lot of it's quite experimental and um, unlistenable, but it's... Um, it's just not necessarily enjoyable. You can definitely listen to it. <laughs> I had a sense that it wasn't for listening to, if that makes sense. And so, especially to a to a what might be like, quote, an audience, but mm -hmm. a single individual that might turn up and wants to hear it, then that's something different. You're sharing something more relational and mm -hmm. direct. And um, time And personal. Well, yeah. And you spoke, Chanel, about agency involved in that, but there is also labor from your part because you have to come to the space each day to perform this labor of putting the tape on. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And labor is or critique of labor is a huge part of the work, especially summer of 68 mm. works. And at the same time, I know that you are a very hardworking art team. So in, in a sense, while critiquing the labor, you do work hard and you do spend lots of hours from, from what I'm perceiving working. Sure. How do you rest? How do you take actually that time off? I feel like also like it's not just about working hard it's also about like I, having a good time I really actually try to choose uh -huh. like projects and types of work or labor that are going to be like enjoyable mm -hmm. joyful that something is going to come out of it um that it's like uplifting mm -hmm. yeah and there's a I, I, th I thought it was funny that uh do you remember the old Mars is it Mars bars they had like work rest and play uh -huh. And, and Gita Board has this sort of uh, statement which is something along the lines of you sleep for your bosses also and that's to uh -huh. say that you're when you're resting you're just resting so that you can get up and go to work again you could be more productive um, and I think yeah. that notion of dividing your life between leisure and work so sometimes our anti-work sentiments is an anti-work framing if that's the right way to say it. Like we, we consider some work is enjoyable, some some research is enjoyable, some mm -hmm. some leisure still work though. Escaping the idea of the idea that leisure is a way to escape work is a sort of is a very like I feel like it's a real construct of, of having to go to a job that you dislike. Mm -hmm. But uh but it's quite probable that you can find enjoyment in the things that are hard, you know, and I think uh you know, hobbies are a bit like that because it takes time and effort to make a small, to glue together a small model plane or something. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's a, I, I think it's. I feel like I'm saying the opposite. Like I don't want it to be hard. No, I'm just saying that. I think uh, I think that separation that's being constructed. You know, I think that's what they call the culture industry is, is how to sell you your leisure. 
yeah. and, and convince you that work is horrible and the only thing that you can do for leisure is go spend money and relax. Which, which is what you were speaking about at the beginning when we spoke about tents, which are this commodification of time off, going on a holiday in those tents. And these tents that you're using, this material, they are vintage tents that were produced in 68. Throughout the 60s. Andre yeah. Jamet is the designer and he was a pioneer. Uh -huh. um, he was a big skier, I think. Um, he was a mountaineer. A mountaineer. Yeah, he, he designed the sort of breakable, breakdown steel frame tent and then then marketed and popular, popularized. That's what made it like a domestic thing rather than just for like basically the army and mountaineering. Um, and we stumbled but, upon that. Um, sorry, you speak. Oh, no, I just feel like it's. it's an, uh, I don't think it's coincidental that like people were looking for um, opportunity to like escape at a time where there was like a lot of civil unrest. There was like these protest movements that we talk about within our work. That expression of freedom and urban escape at a time where there is civil unrest, I feel like go hand in hand. Where the um, the ability to use your freedom as, as a result of those movements to go into the countryside and enjoy a holiday that was probably previously reserved for people that had country homes, as in, mm -hmm. like, the elite, mm -hmm. suddenly became more accessible. Mm -hmm. I feel like I missed the point a little bit on that answer. <laughs> Got diverted. No, there are no diversions, so we can, <laughs> we can take um, any part we want. But uh, you were also wanting to say, Joe, how you stumbled upon those stands, how this started your um, interest in using that as a material. I was just—I was probably more just indicating the sort of way that we, I mean, the the material itself became to generate new ideas and things. And I had this—we were looking for a tent fabric to, to do a particular installation with, um, just because of its beautiful mm -hmm. uh, materiality and ge geometric form. Um, and we've found these French tents, which are just the height of you know, cute and <laughs> they're gorgeous. Um, which is seductive, and that just fell in really well because we had this 1968 tent, and I was. Um, You'd just been to the Guitabord archive in Paris, and you're looking at the like. Um, the impact on the, the, si May the May 68 movement, and so that just tying those two things together, like, mm. and we, and as you said, we started that four years ago, and we didn't really know where it was going or what to do with mm -hmm. it, but we've let it like um, sort of hum along in the background while we've pursued other projects and opportunities. And that's why with the current exhibition, we really wanted to come back to it and to try to try to somehow smash it together with the um, the sound and archive work. Which I feel like is actually working. Like it's kind of like the um, the contemporary voice of our practice that's been influenced by all of those like historical modes that we've been looking at yeah. coming through now. And putting them together might not be particularly resolved. In a way, it was just like letting them sit in the same space to to see how that would where that would go. Yeah, but that's how we do it. <laughs> so now that the National Art School exhibition is on and that project, putting that together, is behind you, which I assume was a huge labour to put that together, <laughs> are you taking some time off, going camping in any tents, or is there something that's coming straight after a generative practice that's never-ending? We have a couple of residencies coming up, and that, but we're planning to do very little on them. Yeah, I think I, yeah, we're actually the most productive when we're on holiday, so we're going to take some holiday. <laughs> That's that paradox, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Taking rest in order to work more or better. 
We're going to hone in on this new side of our practice, which is flying kites and drinking cocktails. And playing music. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been definitely popular these days to do art of nothing as well, so <laughs> I think it um, might take off, which is good, I think, to, to do nothing as well, or at least nothing that produces something necessarily. Thank you for coming to Eastside Radio today. Um, if uh, you would like to see Joe Wilson's and Chanel Collier's work, uh, you can head to National Arts School until 18th of September. Is that... Oh, I thought it was the 9th. Till next Sunday. Okay. Uh, yeah, 11th. Okay. 11th, not 18th. And then also on the 3rd, which is this Saturday, there will be an artist talks with all the That's involved right. artists. Uh, I think... Um, 2 p.m. or maybe 11, not sure. Do you, do you guys know what time that is? It should be 1 p.m., I think. 1 p.m., okay. Neither of <laughs> it's, it's part of the art forum at Mass, and they usually go from 1. Okay. So you have been listening to Arts Monday here on ESED Radio 89.7 FM. Uh, my first guest on the show today was artist Elia Bossard, with whom I spoke about Assembly of Arenas, a work that looks at the deliberate and the unconscious ways we construct spaces of gathering. And this work will soon show at the Sydenham International Gallery, which is in Merrickville on Sydenham Road, opening next Tuesday, September 6, and running until September 11. And for more about this, you can visit eliabossard.com. And after Elia, just uh, a few minutes ago or a few seconds ago, I was in conversation with artist duo Joe Wilson and Chanel Collier. And we were talking about the works that they are showing at the National Arts School at the moment as part of the Art Spaces Visual Arts Fellowship. These works look at the language of resistance and use vintage tent canvases as a material that speaks both of rest and unrest. And if you have missed either of these conversations or would like to listen back, you can head to eastsidefm.org slash artsmonday. That's eastsidefm.org slash artsmonday. Mm-hmm.